Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, a show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I'm your host, Lauren, and I have joining with me today, Dr. Randy Galuza, ICR's president. So good to have you with us today, Dr. Galuza. Yeah, so good to be with you, Lauren. So I wanted to talk a little bit today about natural selection. I know that's a topic you're very passionate about, and we hear about that all the time in popular science. What was the original purpose of natural selection, and where did that idea originally come from? The way you phrase that is perfect, because normally we begin with the question of what is natural selection, and you begin with some kind of definition of natural selection. What are we talking about and all these kinds of things? But really, nobody actually has a definition of natural selection. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, later on in your questions when we we talk about why isn't there a really, really good definition of natural selection. So the way you phrased it was right on. What was the original purpose of natural selection in terms of what Darwin developed? And that was because he needed to answer a really, really important question, which everybody had been trying to answer for a long time. That is, why do creatures look so incredibly designed? Why do they look like they fit their environments so well without explaining it by a designer or or God in many words? Mm -hmm. And because creatures do look so incredibly designed, that was the natural explanation for centuries that God created them or they were made by some intelligent designer. But if you want to get around that, you have to come up with another way of explaining it. And what you really want to explain is agency. Because when we look at creatures and we see how they fit together with their environment, we see how the parts fit together, and now even recently with molecular biology, we we can look at the systems in those areas. We see evidence of an agent, that there was an agent at work. And so what Darwin as you phrase the question, what was its original purpose? His original purpose was to come up with a substitute agent, a substitute agent in lieu of God to explain why creatures look so incredibly designed. And that's how he came up with the concept, and it was Darwin. We have to give credit where credit was due. It was Darwin who came up with the entire concept of natural selection. A lot of people would say, well, there's a lot of people who thought about natural selection before Darwin did. In other words, they saw creatures that they they faced an environmental challenge, and some of those creatures lived and some of them died, and uh, therefore the ones that seemed to live seemed to have traits that fit their environment better. Right. Everybody observed that mm-hmm. on there. But it was really Darwin, Darwin right at the very beginning, who coined the term natural selection, and there was a good reason why he did that. Okay, so with that groundwork laid, and that was really helpful to have just that background, now that we have that background laid, what is natural selection, or at least what is it supposed to be? Natural selection was a concept that was originally conceived by Darwin by comparing nature to what a human breeder would do. You know, you know there's breeders, that, people that breed roses and people that breed cattle, and they can uh, get a huge diversity of traits within a very, very short period of time. In fact, Darwin was looking at pigeon breeders at the time. Mm. He could see all these different kinds of pigeons. And just within a short period of time, these pigeon breeders, by picking for one trait or another trait, they could get a big variety of pigeons in a relatively short time. So he thought, well, what, what if that could happen naturally? What if nature could act like a pigeon breeder And if you can get this big variety of pigeons in such a short time, what could nature do Mm. over a really, really long period of time? So he compared nature to a pigeon breeder. And 
that's where his analogy goes off the rails right from the very beginning. Initially, people observe that, but nobody is catching it these days, that there is no good legitimate reason to compare nature, which is as full of living things but isn't alive, to something that does have a brain, which has real intelligence and real volition and therefore can make real selections. And that's how we coined the term natural selection. Nature is selecting similar to how a human breeder would be selecting. Backing up to your earlier question, that's really pretty good. How did natural selection replace God? And you have to look at what Darwin was trying to do. If you're going to explain agency, God's agency, with nature, you have to be able to get nature as an agent in some way. Mm -hmm. And the way he was able to ascribe agency to nature was he found a way to ascribe intelligence to nature and volition to nature. So you have intelligence and you have volition, and I do too, and animals do, and even God does. God has all of those things. So he hit upon a really important word in doing that, and it's not natural. It was selection. The moment you can project onto something its ability to select, you have just projected onto it intelligence and volition. Mm -hmm. And if something has a real brain, it makes a lot of sense. If they can really think and if they can really make choices, well, then they can really select. How Darwin does it is he personifies nature. Nature doesn't have a real brain. Nature can't really make selections by any means. So he projects onto nature selective ability. And when he projects onto nature that selective ability, he is projecting onto nature the ability to make choices, through its ability to think. And that's how he personifies it, and that's why it's used as a causal explanation in so many, many scientific papers. It's not just used as a metaphor, it's used as an actual cause. Mm -hmm. And they use it as a cause as if nature were actually picking and choosing winners and losers and selecting for, selecting against, and they use it as if it has the ability to act or to favor, or to work on, or to cull. All of those verbs are ascribed to nature. And you know, you and I might say, well, that's just a metaphor, or that's just a figure of speech. And it would be okay if we just used it as a figure of speech. But when you read evolutionary literature, and when you read some creationist literature, it's actually used as a causal explanation. Mm. This is because nature acted on it. This is because nature favored. This is because whatever nature did it. And that is the insidious personification of nature, which takes over in all these explanations. So in light of the fact that it is really just personification and a metaphor, why do you think that took over to such a degree in the academic community? Well, there are several reasons. One, as I mentioned earlier, nobody can really define natural selection. Um, you, you, you think, wow, it's just what I learned in school, survival of the fittest, something so easily explainable as survival of the fittest, which really is another thing that Darwin introduced, which is circular reasoning. The reasons why organisms survive is because they were so-called the fittest, and how do we know they were the fittest? It's because they survived. And you find that right in the subtitle of his book, which is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection mm -hmm. or the Preservation of Favored Races in the struggle for life. People forget about that part. I do. And it, that's very circular. 
why were they preserved? It's because they were favored. And how do you know that they were favored? It's because they were preserved. And so there's circular reasoning introduced right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So since nobody can really define natural selection, since it's really just, really just a way of interpreting observations, it's easy to take hold because, because it's one of those vacuous things that nobody can really nail down. If you don't mind, I'd like to just read you a couple things from, from the evolutionary literature themselves. It'll just take a moment. Yes, let's hear it straight uh, from the source. Yeah, straight yeah. from the sources. That's a great way of putting it. Of uh, These people who point out this personification of nature and why it is weak and why nobody has come up with a definition. Because you might turn to Webster's Dictionary and you might say, hey, here's the definition right here. Webster says this, or the American Standard Dictionary says this. And that may be true what they put in a dictionary, but people who try to make sense of the term, who are actually using the term, can't really nail it down. So this is a very thoughtful man. His name is Jerry Fodor. He was a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University. He wrote a book um, that was highly criticized by many evolutionists called What Darwin Got Wrong. Mm. And prior to publishing that book, he was writing articles pointing out where Darwin was wrong in terms of this personification of nature. So he's already, he's already passed away. But before he passed away, he said this, the present worry is that in the explication of natural selection by appeal to selective breeding, this is seriously misleading, and it thoroughly misled Darwin. What then is the intended interpretation when one speaks of natural selection? The question is wide open as of this writing. And he makes a very good observation. The whole idea of comparing nature to a breeder is very, very misleading, as he points out. Uh, Another prominent evolutionist who's still alive. He's up in Canada now, uh, Dr. Doolittle. He said in just 2015, just a few years ago, catch this, practicing biologists may be surprised that there is still debate about what kind of a force or principle or process natural selection actually is and what sort of entities it might act on and what is the meaning of fitness. We readily invoke, but often cannot easily explicate these concepts. Wow. So you think you know what you're talking about, here, but here's a man who's trying to deal with it in the literature, and he says, we can't even define it. Practicing biologists would be surprised about this. And he not only mentions, as you see here, natural selection, but even a term like fitness. What does it mean to be fit? Is fitness survival? Is fitness the number of offspring you have? Is fitness the number of offspring that live to reproduce themselves? So nobody can really define fitness. It seems like everybody comes up with fitness to fit their own terms. Mm. And then finally, there was an excellent, excellent book, which um, Dr. Frank Sherwin recommended to me right when I started here, um, on definitions of terms that evolutionists use. It was published by Harvard Press, and this is a gentleman named Michael Hodge. He's a, an historian of science. He mentions this in Keywords in Evolutionary Biology. A quite general issue has still received no canonical treatment. What kind of a thing is natural selection anyway? Is it a law, a principle, a force, a cause, an agent, or all or some of these things? And so if you can't define the term, it's easy to throw around without a lot of thought on it. In fact, I was on a blog this week, and there was two gentlemen each one forcefully taking a strong position on natural selection. One was insisting that it was a cause, and the other was insisting, guess what? 
It was the effect. Mm. So nobody can really define this term. Including its greatest proponents. That's really interesting. That's right. The people who are supposedly using it the most really can't nail it down. Mm -hmm. And Michael Hodge, he went on to say, it's quite remarkable how anybody can say that they've cornered the market on the definition of natural selection. Mm. So really what it is, it's a way of interpreting observations. Okay. So with all of that in mind, you touched a little bit on this, but I kind of want to go more in depth with this. What are some of the greatest issues that natural selection presents both to science and also to Christians? Yes. Well, one, it's an undefinable term. It's just a way of interpreting data. You see a population of organisms and some challenge faces them. Maybe it's a drought or something like that, and mm -hmm. you see some of them live and some of them die. Oh, that's a great challenge because that's the observation that we need to explain. You can't define your mechanism as that. And so, in other words, uh, maybe you define natural selection. Somebody would come up and say, well, I think natural selection is just you know, differential reproduction for that matter. So it's, that's just differential reproduction, and that's natural selection. Well, this is a challenge. Differential reproduction is what we need to explain. Why is there differential reproduction? That's the biological observation. And if I were to ask you, if you're one of those proponents, why is there differential reproduction? You would say it's because of natural selection. But you just define natural selection as mm. differential reproduction. Circular reasoning. So it's very circular yeah. reasoning. So one of the biggest problems is that nobody comes up with a definition of it. The second one we've already talked on as well. From a scientific sense, we don't like personifications of nature. We don't like to turn nature into an agent, and particularly as a causal agent. And many evolutionists have hit on that as well, that this is, this is very, very misleading. In fact, there's an evolutionist named Stephen Talbot who he's not fully on board with all the things that the Darwinians say, and he's a good thinker, and he's somewhat critical of it. And he has pointed out a problem. This is my last quote, and I, I won't have any more, but it's, it's a very perceptive quote, and it's just a few years old. He said in 2016, and he's pointing out a problem of, of what you're just exactly asking about. What's the problem in terms of science? And he says, evolutionary biologists routinely speak of natural selection as if it were an agent. That's exactly what Darwin wanted it to be. He wanted it to be a substitute agent. So when evolutionary biologists speak of it as if it were an agent, they're, they're doing what Darwin wanted. He goes on to say, and many evolutionary biologists, in fact, assure us that the idea of a selecting agent is only a metaphor. So they say, well, it's only a metaphor. We're not really treating it like it's an agent. Even... He goes on to say, even as they themselves succumb to the compelling force of the metaphor. They think it's a metaphor, but they're using it as more than a metaphor. Mm. And so are we to believe that natural selection, which is, quote, not an agent except metaphorically, manages to design artifacts and the organism is not, after all, a creative originating agent? It, he's speaking of the organism's agency, has been transferred to an abstraction, that abstraction is what? Natural selection, whose causal agency or force is amid intellectual confusion, both denied and universally implied by biologists, i.e., they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're using it as a cause, but they're saying it's only a metaphor. Mm. 
Mm. And he, he's saying that they don't even catch that they're doing this. Natural selection, he concludes, becomes rather like an occult power of the pre-scientific age. That's a problem for science. So that's a huge problem for science. And then I think your second question was... Yeah, I was just asking about what are some of the key problems that natural selection presents to the church and to Christians? Right. Perfect question. Because you know from Romans 1 that one of the main general revelations of God to everybody is the fact that he demonstrates agency through the things that he's created. And he demonstrates that agency because we see corresponding features between creatures and man-made things that do similar functions. And we can almost see the same parts and now that we can look molecularly, we can see the same systems there. So for Christians, we believe that God demonstrates his agency through what he has created in those areas. And we believe that anything that takes the place of God as creator, we would call an idol. Well, Christians face the same problem that science does, and that's with the personification of nature. Nature being personified to act as if it's God. And interestingly, Michael Hodge, the one I read earlier who said nobody really knows what the definition is of, of natural selection, he pointed out a really important observation. He said one of the early criticisms that Darwin faced was that he used natural selection as if it was a substantive governing a verb. And I, I read that and I thought, what is he talking about here? A substantive is something like you and me, real objects. Mm -hmm. And we can govern verbs. We can act. We can control. We can favor. We can do those kinds of things. And he said he's treating a concept, a thought, as if it was a real thing that could govern verbs. Mm -hmm. And then he said people then criticized him that this seemed to reify if not deify natural selection as an agent. In other words, we could hold up a statue, and I could tell you this statue can act. This statue can favor you. This statue can select something for you. And you would immediately recognize it as idolatry because you know the statue has no ability to do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. What's subtle about natural selection, it's harder to get, is Darwin's not holding up a statue that says it favored these creatures or it acted on these creatures. Right. He's holding up something a little harder to see, nature itself. And he's saying nature can act, nature can select, nature can favor. And that's how he's reifying, in fact, deifying nature to act as the substitute creator. And that's why so many people are in love with Charles Darwin, because they think he hit on, he hit on the way to explain why creatures look so incredibly designed without a designer. So is there an alternative to this natural selection viewpoint? What would that look like? Well, of course, there's an alternative to it. Um, one is we don't personify nature. We can go about explanations where we are not going to personify nature in any way. We see the features of creatures that look like they were highly designed, and we explain them in terms of that. So we don't, we don't attribute any causal ability or any causal agency, for that matter, to nature itself. We treat creatures as they really are, highly designed, engineered entities. Mm. And when they face a challenging environment, 
And when some of them face that challenging environment and they and they're able to fill a new niche, mm-hmm. or some of them face a challenging environment now after the fall and some of them die, and some of those creatures stay right where they are, we don't look to nature as supposedly mystically favoring some and favoring others or selecting some or, or not selecting others. Mm-hmm. We would do what we would do with any engineered entity. We would look to the traits of the thing that was designed and see which traits had successfully solved environmental challenges mm-hmm. and which traits didn't. In other words, you look at the design thing and you see which traits are successful and which traits are not. That's how we would approach creatures in analyzing uh, why some creatures are in one environment and why creatures aren't. It's always due to their traits, always due to their traits. So the answer is we need to build a theory of biological design. We need to build a theory of biological design. We need to start explaining creatures in terms of their features, just as we would explain why one man-made thing was successful or not. Mm -hmm. And that's to go right back to where things are originally, and that is in terms of design. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Galuza. We will look forward to hearing more about ICR's new theory of biological design here in the future. We'll look forward Mm -hmm. to that. But for today, thank you again for joining us. You're very welcome. And thank you again to our viewers and listeners for joining us today. You can find ICR on YouTube, Spotify, or anywhere else that you access your podcast. We encourage you to subscribe for more creation content. Again, I'm Lauren, and we'll see you next time on the Creation Podcast.